Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Uh, Mr. Chrisman coming at you here tonight from uh, my underground bunker here. I have a new microphone set up, uh, looking for some feedback. If anybody can provide that, I'm curious how this sounds compared to some earlier podcasts. Uh, today's subject is going to be the era of good feelings. Uh, it's a time period just after the War of 1812. The United States has defeated uh, Britain for a second time. Uh, the United States is it's kind of an interesting time period because there's, there's a sense of nationalism, a sense of national purpose, but there's also a, a growing sense of division or sectionalism. Uh, the country is really divided, not east to west like we think of today, but more uh, north and south. So um, let's kind of get into things here because you also have, uh, in addition to this sense of nationalism and sectionalism going on, uh, you have the the Supreme Court really establishing itself as uh, an, an up-and-coming branch of the government, so to speak. If you check the Constitution or you've read past, if you listen to past podcasts, you'll know the judicial branch was kind of the 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 weakest of the three branches according to the constitution and there are two landmark uh, supreme court cases uh that we're going to get into here uh anybody who's been in any one of my classes knows that uh supreme court cases are not my favorite thing to to uh, get into and to talk about uh but we're going to get into that nonetheless and we're going to start with a case um mccullough v maryland uh 1819 uh, what's interesting that's going on here is uh, the state of Maryland uh, was attempting to tax the National Bank, uh, that national bank that was established under uh, George Washington's presidency by Alexander Hamilton. Uh, the Maryland state government actually felt that the National Bank was unconstitutional, and uh, they felt that because the bank operated in their state that they had the right to tax uh, that institution. Uh, the case ends up in the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that states... Uh, could not control federal federal institutions, that only the national government could do that. And uh, they also reaffirmed the fact that the National Bank was constitutional. Um, it, this does a couple of things. First off, obviously, Maryland can't tax the National Bank. Uh, but this really strengthened the power of the, of the national government or the federal government. It's really kind of uh, solidifying that idea that if there's an argument between state government and federal government, um, the federal government trumps uh, the, the state government uh, in, in most cases. Uh, this is still Chief Justice John Marshall, the same Chief Justice under Marbury v. Madison. Uh, if you listen to the, listen to the last podcast, uh, John Marshall was trying to make sure that the Supreme Court was relevant and was given um, kind of the proper power it, it, he felt it really deserved. Another important Supreme Court case during this time period is Gibbons v. Ogden, 1824. Um, 
you have uh, two owners of uh, shipping companies, uh, Thomas Gibbons and Aaron Ogden. Uh, Thomas Gibbons was given a monopoly, a legal monopoly, uh, of his steamboat company to uh, for trade in uh, on New York City rivers. Uh, at the same time, he was given that by the New York State government. The federal government uh, gave Aaron Ogden permission to trade along the coast of the United States, which of course included along the, the coast of the state of New York. And this puts uh, Gibbons and Ogden's companies in conflict with one another. Um, and, and Gibbons uh, ends up suing Ogden. The case ends up in the Supreme Court. And the real question was, which person would be given rights to trade and which level of government was strongest? Uh, was New York allowed to uh, control its trade? Uh, or was the federal government because they gave Aaron Ogden's company the ability to trade across the states? Uh, was, was he going to be given uh, the right to trade uh, over Gibbon, uh, or Gibbons? Uh, so the Supreme Court ruled that the Commerce Clause of the Constitution determined that the federal government, the national government, once again, controlled the trade along the coast and the rivers, and that the federal government uh, power trumps the state powers. And then once again, John Marshall, still in, in charge of the Supreme Court, uh, is really kind of establishing that the federal government uh, really has control, uh, much more so over the states. So a couple of important cases there. Um, I know to some younger students, they might not seem all that uh, exciting. Uh, they're certainly not quite as big of landmark cases as we, as we consider as like Plessy v. Ferguson, Brown v. Board of Education, Schenck v. U.S. Uh, but they are important nonetheless, and those are uh, ideas that we still uh, hold on to, to today. Uh, during this era of good feelings, we also have a, a number of inventions. They're going to change business. Uh, it's going to change business and trade in, in general. It's going to be a shift uh, from American reliance upon European products and imports to the United States becoming more uh, self-sufficient. And the shift becomes known as the market revolution. Uh, any student of history will tell you a revolution is a time period where uh, you have change, and we certainly have change going on. I'm going to highlight uh, some of the kind of more important uh, changes and inventions. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick rundown of what they are and how they're important, uh, and then we'll kind of move on to our next topic. And and in some of these, um, I'm hoping some of the students, some of you students, will uh, will certainly uh, recognize. I'm going to start with one that goes back to 1765, uh, before the colonies declared their independence. Uh, the invention is called the spinning jenny. Uh, it was uh, invented by James Hargreaves um, in England. Uh, what, this, what the spinning jenny does is it replaces that old spinning wheel that I know many of you have seen before where you take a wool and you run it through the, the spinning wheel and it, turn, it pulls the, the wool into a thin thread. Uh, you can spin one spool of thread at a time through a spinning wheel. Uh, the, spinning, the spinning jenny, powered by water by the way, uh, allows for the, the uh, spinning of hundreds of spools of thread uh, at a time, not just one. Um, and what this does is it causes the production of thread to increase and also the production of, of cloth to increase uh, and will also cause a decrease in cloth um, or decrease in the price of cloth. It's going to also change things from making clothes at home, kind of like cottage industry, to uh, making those items in factories. 
another invention that's important to this textile industry or cloth making industry is the cotton gin. Uh, gin is short, by the way, for engine. Uh, it's invented in 1793 by an American, Eli Whitney. Um, and the idea is that uh, the cotton gin is going to help to do what's called cleaning cotton. Uh, and this has nothing to do with the color of the cotton. It has everything to do with uh, taking the seeds that get wound up in the fibers of a cotton plant or cotton, yeah, cotton plant uh, while it's growing. And to pick the seeds out by hand is very difficult to do. Um, there are many reports of the average slave uh, before the cotton gin. It took them one full day to clean one pound of cotton to take all those seeds out. And of course, those seeds are important because you need to um, stretch that cotton into a thin fiber for thread. And then you can, of course, use the seeds for uh, next year's crop. So with the cotton gin, which is this box-like machine with combs that kind of comb out the, the seeds, uh, that same slave that, took, that could only clean one pound of cotton a day by hand could now clean 50 pounds of cotton a day using the cotton gin. Uh, and cotton production is going to go up uh, significantly. Um, you know, if, if even if you take some uh, time period like 1830, where they're already producing 750,000 bales of cotton, um, by 1850, only 20 years later, they're able to produce uh, 2.85 million pounds. Uh, or, I'm sorry, bales of cotton. This uh, increase in the, the production of cotton is going to cause a demand for slaves to increase because plantation owners uh, want to plant more. And if you're going to plant more, you want to harvest more. So you have the demand for slaves that's going to uh, skyrocket exponentially. Uh, 1790, there's 700,000 slaves in the southern United States. By 1850, just on the eve of the Civil War, uh, that number has jumped to 3.2 million slaves. Uh, so I think there's you can make the argument there's a direct correlation between the invention of the cotton gin and the expansion of slavery in the southern part of the United States. Now, Eli Whitney, we're going to continue with in 1797. Uh, he gets a contract uh, from the United States government to make rifles for the military. Uh, and he actually will invent something that we use a lot today called interchangeable parts. Uh, it's kind of a revolutionary thing in that time period because guns up to this point had been handmade, meaning that each gun was unique and uh, therefore very difficult to repair. Most often you had to buy a new, uh, a new musket or a new gun if, the, if you had any damage to yours. Um, Eli Whitney really kind of impressed congressmen by coming in with uh, 10 muskets that he had made all with interchangeable parts. He took them all apart. He put all the parts in a box, mixed them all up and reassembled the muskets and demonstrated that the muskets still fired. Uh, this allowed Eli Whitney to continue his contract with the United States government uh, and, and light leads to things like interchangeable parts today. Uh, when I taught younger students, I always uh, ask questions about, can you imagine uh, having a car uh, without interchangeable parts? That would certainly make things very, very challenging. Um, another invention that's going to be important to transportation uh, is the steamboat, uh, invented by Robert Fulton, the first successful steamboat uh, named the Claremont, uh, was slow by modern standards. Uh, it averaged only about five miles an hour, uh, but it was considered much more reliable uh, than those sailing vessels that relied on the wind uh, and had a very difficult time either sailing into the wind or going against current. Uh, and this created a, a more reliable system to ship uh, products to be traded. Uh, along those same lines, 
Uh, this is the same time period where the Erie Canal was constructed. Uh, for any of my students who have uh, been in the Holly District for their, uh, their academic career, you know a lot about the Erie Canal, but I'm just going to hit some of the highlights because I know uh, it's talked about a lot here, particularly in Western New York. Um, but, you know, the Erie Canal, uh, you know, as the song goes, connected Albany to Buffalo. But that's important because by connecting to Albany, you can take your products down the Hudson River to New York City and out to the rest of the world. Getting your products to Buffalo means that you can get them to the Great Lakes and to the center part of the United States at that point. Um, the canal itself uh, is is constructed, at least construction starts on July 4th of 1817. It was really kind of the, um, the idea of DeWitt Clinton, uh, the governor of New York at the time. Uh, it's going to take a significant number of years to build. It's, it's finished on October 26, 1825. By the time the whole thing is done, uh, it's 363 miles long. Uh, it's constructed mostly by American uh, workers and Irish immigrants. And I always thought it was interesting that uh, those workers were not paid uh, for their work until the entire canal was finished uh, to keep them motivated uh, to get that canal done. Of course, shipping prices are, are going to drop significantly because it's easier to move products uh, and shipping rates drop as much as 95%. Uh, most Americans are kind of surprised to find out the original canal is not uh, the way it is today. It's only four feet deep and about 40 feet wide. Uh, and that was due to the fact that um, it's not using steamboats uh, to move products, it's using barges. Uh, which is why we have that towpath along the canal so those mules could pull the barges along. Uh, another important invention, uh, not in transportation, but for farmers, uh, was in 1831 by Cyrus McCormick, known as the McCormick or the Mechanical Reaper. Uh, this is a horse-drawn reaper to harvest crops. Up to this point, uh, most farmers had grown corn because corn was very easy to harvest. Uh, what, the, what the mechanical reaper or the McCormick reaper allows farmers to do is to harvest wheat easier. It actually uh, quintupled the harvest of wheat. Uh, so many farmers changed their focus to, to growing wheat rather than corn. Um, locally speaking, um, there's, a, there's a park in the village of Brockport called McCormick Park right along the Erie Canal. Um, I know some of my students have been there, uh, didn't realize that the reason why it's called McCormick Park is because Cyrus McCormick actually had a factory there and used the canal uh, to ship his products uh, to other parts of the United States. Uh, he then moves his, uh, his factory from that location along the canal uh, to the city of Chicago, which is more centrally located, especially for uh, Midwestern farmers. Six years after that, uh, that mechanical reaper is invented, uh, John Deere comes up with another important invention. And no, it's not the uh, lawnmower. Uh, it's the lightweight steel plow. Uh, plows have been around for a long, long time, uh, mostly made of wood. Um, but John Deere's improvement really uh, allows for a sturdier plow. Uh, and if cleaned and taken care of, a lightweight steel plow could last for a very, very long time. And by 1849, his company is making over 2,000 plows a year, which is a, a pretty significant number for that time period. The last invention I'm going to be covering here uh, is one that I know many students have heard of before, uh, created in 1844 by Samuel F.B. Morse, and that is the telegraph. Uh, telegraph sends electrical impulses along a wire. Uh, those impulses come out as beeps. 
Uh, and you can control the length of the beep. And so what Samuel F.B. Morris did was he created a, a series of dots, short beeps and dashes, long beeps to create an alphabet. And that's known as Morse code, which I know our military uh, still teaches and utilizes today uh, in emergency situations. Now, at the same time that's going on, uh, the United States government is actually working with Great Britain to kind of solidify uh, the borders with British Canada to our north. And so we signed two treaties during this time period that kind of leads to that sense of nationalism. So here we've, we've not only defeated the British once during the American Revolution, but a second time in the War of 1812. We signed the rush bagot Treaty in 1817, where Britain and the United States agreed to disarm the Great Lakes. Uh, which, by the way, Canada still uh, recognizes that treaty with the United States today. Uh, you will not find military ships on the Great Lakes. Um, and, and really has it kind of set the tone for uh, the relationship between those countries. We also signed the Convention of 1818, sometimes known as the Treaty of 1818. And this really solidified our northern border with Canada, particularly off uh, west of the Great Lakes. Uh, and this solidified our border at 49 degrees north latitude, uh, sometimes referred to as the 49th parallel. Now, with all this nationalism going on, there is some real division, and it shows itself uh, towards the end of the era of good feelings um, with a real conflict over the admission of a new state. Now, if you remember back in 1803, when we talked about Thomas Jefferson, the United States had purchased the Louisiana Territory. Uh, by 1820, uh, the area of Missouri uh, had enough people in it to apply for statehood. But the problem was that at this point in 1820, there were 11 free states uh, where slavery was illegal or was kind of on the way out. Uh, and there were 11 slave states where slavery was uh, not only uh, allowed, uh, but was growing. And the problem was the admission of Missouri would upset that balance of power. Uh, particularly in the Senate, where every state has an equal number of senators. Um, and the concern was that either slave states or free states would end up with uh, more power over the other. So after much debate in Congress, uh, Henry Clay uh, comes up with a compromise. Uh, Henry Clay might be, not be a name you recognize. I would argue he's one of the most important uh, Americans in the early uh, early part of our nation's history to never become president. Uh, he's going to run, by the way, four times, and he loses all four times. I kind of feel bad for Henry Clay. But he is known as the great compromiser because he does come up with a number of compromises that help uh, solve this issue of slavery and westward expansion. And this is the first example of that. So the compromise that uh, Henry Clay comes up with is that they would add Missouri as a slave state um, and then they take an area that's to the north of Massachusetts that originally had been a part of the colony of Massachusetts and up until 1820 was considered a part of the state of Massachusetts. Uh, and that area gets, uh, gets to be its own separate state and is renamed Maine. So you add Missouri as a slave state, Maine as a free state. So now you, you maintain that balance of power. You now end up with 12 free states and, and 12 slave states. But then they continue on from there with the compromise. They draw a line extending from Missouri's southern border, which is 36 degrees, 30 minutes north latitude to the Rocky Mountains. And the agreement was that any new states added north of that line would be free states, with Missouri being an exception. Any new states added south of that line uh, would be added as slave states. Now, if you Google image, 
uh, Missouri Compromise map. Uh, what you will see is that section of land that uh, might become free states in the future compared to that area of land that might be slave states in the future, uh, they're not equal. A matter of fact, the areas that, that are going to potentially be free states are much, much bigger than the area that will be potentially slave states. So it solves the issue of slavery and westward expansion for now, but it's setting up the, a crisis for later on. Uh, what happens when slave states are outnumbered by free states? And this is kind of uh, iterated by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson uh, was not happy with the Missouri Compromise in 1820. As a matter of fact, he wrote to a friend of his, uh, John Holmes. Um, and, and this is what he said. Uh, these are his words, quote, But this momentous question, like a fire bell in the night, awakened and filled me with terror. I considered it at once as the knell of the Union. It is hushed indeed for the moment, but this is only a reprieve, not a final sentence. A geographic line coinciding with a marked principle, moral and political, one once conceived and held up the angry passions of men will never be obliterated, and every new irritation will make it deeper and deeper." Unquote. Jefferson's talking about, you know, you're putting this issue, uh, you're solving the issue for now, but you're not putting it to bed, so to speak. It's not over. This issue is going to keep creeping up, and we will see that as we go through the next couple of podcasts. Kind of ending up and exiting out of the era of good feelings, we have a doctrine or a policy that's going to be established by the United States uh, that will hopefully make the United States more relevant on the world stage, but will also kind of set the policy for the United States to, uh, to intervene in other parts of the Western Hemisphere. So as a part of James Monroe's uh, address to Congress in 1823, uh, President Monroe essentially declared the Western Hemisphere closed to colonization by European powers. Now, why would he choose to do this in 1823? Well, Mexico and many parts of Central and South America had declared their independence by the 1820s, and almost every single one of those countries except for Brazil had declared their independence from Spain. There was real concern that Spain or some other Europe, powerful European country would return to take over these new and kind of vulnerable uh, countries in the Western Hemisphere. Now, what's interesting about this is the United States in 1823 did not have the military uh, power to enforce this policy or back it up, but England really wanted to kind of back it up and help us out um, because they didn't want countries like Spain or Germany or France uh, to grow in power and be a threat to them. Now, this document is used, uh, the Monroe Doctrine, uh, numerous times throughout American history to kind of justify American actions. And I'm just going to discuss uh, a couple here really quick. Uh, first off, American intervention in, in Latin America, this, this North and, in, in, I'm sorry, Central America and South America, uh, together is known as Latin America, uh, Americans will intervene in Latin America numerous times, places like Cuba, Haiti, uh, Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, uh, Chile, Argentina. Um, it's most famously used by John F. Kennedy in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we'll cover uh, in another podcast. But essentially, the Soviets had put nuclear missiles uh, into Cuba, uh, less than 90 miles away from uh, southern Florida. Uh, John F. Kennedy uh, said, look, you can't do that. We've, we've declared the Western Hemisphere close, closed to European powers. 
Uh, and it actually almost leads to uh, a nuclear war. Um, and it's been used more by more recent presidents. Um, I know President Reagan invoked uh, the Monroe Doctrine. It's been used by President Clinton as well uh, to intervene in places like Haiti uh, and Venezuela. And this is still a doctrine that we implement and enforce today. Uh, if you pay attention to uh, recent events in Venezuela, uh, the United States certainly is concerned and has uh, kind of voiced its opinion about Russian involvement uh, in Venezuela. So it'll be an interesting uh, thing to keep an eye on that and see if this document from 1823 uh, causes any potential conflict in the future. Well, that's it for the uh, era of good feelings. Um, we will move on from here uh, into our next topic in the next podcast. Um, as always, if you have any questions or ideas for topics for us to answer or to discuss, please contact us at hollyhistory65 at gmail.com or send us a tweet at hollyhistory. Don't forget, we have a ton of episodes, including other history shorts at Holly History on SoundCloud or our Holly History channel on YouTube. Thank you for listening. Have a good day.